This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Last Saturday, Donald Trump surprised everyone by posting a prediction on his Truth Social platform. The former president making headlines, predicting he'd be arrested at the investigation's conclusion. Trump was referring to a case going on in New York as a Manhattan grand jury continues to meet to consider criminal charges against him. Their case centers on whether then-candidate Donald Trump in 2016 directed his attorney, Michael Cohen, to pay off adult film star Stormy Daniels, who claimed she had an affair with Mr. Trump a decade prior. But after all the furore, we didn't see Trump led out in handcuffs or hear of him being brought up before a judge. So why did he get so rattled? I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. Yeah, so the grand jury in the Manhattan DA case uh, involving the hush money with Stormy Daniels uh, meets on Monday, Wednesday and Thursday afternoons. Um, Hugo Lowell is the political investigations reporter for Guardian US, who covers specifically Trump and the Justice Department. I spoke to Hugo on Thursday evening after we'd heard the grand jury in Manhattan would not be meeting again this week. The earliest opportunity uh, for the grand jury to vote on an indictment in this case is going to be next week, Monday now. Uh, and, you know, just to give you a sense of the timeline, once uh, the Manhattan DA gets this indictment in hand, what they will do is they will go and draft it. They will lay out the counts uh, and then they will call up Trump's lawyers. And they will say, look, you know, the, the, the grand jury has returned an indictment. Um, let's agree on a surrender date. It's typically within 24 to 48 hours. They will find a date and then Trump will come up to New York for regular processing. And that will be uh, for fingerprinting and to take a mugshot like every other defendant, at which point, you know, he will then go back to uh, Mar-a-Lago in, in Palm Beach. And what, if anything, should we read into the fact that, as you say, unexpectedly, that first stage in the process didn't happen on either Wednesday or Thursday of this week? It's tricky to read very much into it, actually, because all of the grand jury proceedings are on the seal. Uh, so it's all happening behind closed doors. We don't know the reasoning. It could be because they're trying to find a, a rebuttal witness to a witness that the Trump team actually proposed and um, had testified on the Monday, you know, we understand that there is potentially at least one more witness uh, left to testify to kind of rebut the claims made by Robert Costello, this Trump lawyer. But then again, we're not exactly sure. And so it may be nothing more than, you know, a scheduling issue, or it may be that they want to assess more of the evidence. 
it's just not clear. Uh, and, I, and I think it would be dangerous to read too much into the, the scheduling changes. Now, we know that anything to do with Donald Trump, especially if there's even the possibility that he himself will appear in person, rapidly becomes a circus, even a zoo. What is has been the scene that you've witnessed uh, outside the courthouse, with the crowds, the supporters? Just give us a picture of how it's looked this week. I actually start not this week, but last week when Michael Cohen testified for what we thought would have been the final time. Former Trump fixer turned fierce Trump critic Michael Cohen, alleging Mr. Trump gave him $130,000 in 2016 to buy Daniel's silence. When Michael Cohen first testified, he testified over two days on Monday and Wednesday. There was probably, I want to say, about 30 reporters there, a bunch of TV cameras. And reporters are kind of falling over themselves to get in front of Michael Cohen to ask questions. That scene has only expanded this week. Basically, by now, if you go down to uh, one Hogan place, which is where the uh, district attorney's office is, uh, there are NYPD bike rack style fencing all around. That kind of gives you a sense of the, the, the media element to this. And, you know, we've had some Trump supporters come down, but it's been really muted. There was probably more reporters than there were protesters. Just on the legal dimension of this, you mentioned Michael Cohen who, you know, famously his lawyer, his personal lawyer, who sort of in effect turned on him uh, several years ago and in 2018 was sentenced to three years in prison uh, for multiple charges, including, you know, violation of campaign finance rules by paying this $130,000 sum to the adult film performer Stormy Daniels, apparently to keep quiet about an, uh, an alleged affair she'd had with Donald Trump. I get completely why that was against the rules and why Cohen was sentenced to to jail time, three years of it for that. If Donald Trump is charged, what exactly would he be charged for? You know, where, where's his legal problem in this particular case? So Michael Cohen was uh, indicted and convicted at the federal level. You know, those charges were brought by federal prosecutors for federal campaign finance violations. The case here is different. It's being prosecuted by the Manhattan District Attorney. It's a state level case. And while we don't know exactly the kind of charges that might come, we anticipate the base level charge here being a falsification of business records. And that's because Trump reimbursed Michael Cohen for the hush money that was paid to Stormy Daniels. It doesn't really matter if, if Trump actually had an affair or, uh, you know, or what he did with Stormy Daniels. What matters is how he classified the money when he reimbursed Michael Cohen. And basically what Trump appears to have done basically what recorded the money as legal expenses when we now know that was not true, right? There was, there was not legal expenses being paid to Michael Cohen. It was, it was basically financing through a, a, a more complicated scheme, the, the hush money to Stormy Daniels. And so that's where the case starts. That's a misdemeanor. To elevate it into a felony, that first crime has to be in furtherance of a second crime under New York law. So they have to find a second crime. And this is where there has been a lot of speculation about where the district attorney might go. You know, originally, we thought there might be a way for him to interpret the, the, the federal law in a novel way and say, you know, the, the falsification of business records was tied to a campaign finance violation. But it's quite possible that the district attorney avoids that question completely and actually says, well, the records are falsified and Trump engaged in tax fraud because by classifying it as a legal expense, Trump never paid tax 
on the 130,000 that got paid to Stormy Daniels. Which has a slight Al Capone vibe about it, where you get the guy on some apparently quite technical tax-related charge when everyone feels that actually it's symbolic of a, or a surrogate for a bigger crime. What about on Trump's own side, his legal team? What kind of defence are his lawyers going to advance in this case? Yeah, we learned in recent days that the Trump lawyers actually met with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office a few weeks ago, where they tried to stave off any charges by making a bunch of legal arguments they thought were uh, convincing. Now, we don't know how the district attorney responded or kind of what the kind of prosecutors in New York are thinking. Trump's lawyers essentially argued um, that they didn't see this being a crime because the prosecutors didn't seem to meet what they called the irrespective test. And the irrespective test goes, well, if the hush money to Stormy Daniels would have been paid irrespective of the presidential campaign, then it's not a crime because it wasn't done in furtherance um, of kind of helping his campaign or benefiting his campaign. Now, you know, I think if that argument was made at trial, if this end up being, uh, if, there, if there are criminal charges here, the DA's office would respond by saying, well, you know, that may not be particularly convincing because of the timing. And if you look at the timing, the payments were being made uh, at the closing stages of the 2016 campaign. And prosecutors will surely say the fact that there was so much urgency to get this done um, before election day meant that Trump clearly saw this as a threat to his campaign and so was doing it at least in part to benefit his presidential ambitions. You've told us how it could happen early next week. If it does, the optics of this really matter to Donald Trump. I, you know, you hinted at this, that he kind of wants there to be the famous New York perp walk, you know, where he walks as an alleged perpetrator of a crime in handcuffs, maybe bundled into an NYPD squad car, uh, blue light flashing, siren screeching. Tell us why he might want those optics, but also do you think, Hugo, he's going to get them? You know, with Trump, you know, two things can be true at the same time. He can both be really fearful about the prospect of charges and what it might look like and how it might kind of stain his legacy. And at the same time, you know, he is always very focused on the optics, as you say, and he wants to basically project defiance and above all to not look like a loser or like a coward. He is so afraid of looking weak that, you know, he has reason to kind of his advisors in recent days that if he's given any sort of special accommodations or arrangements or, you know, he's seen skulking through the back door into uh, the courthouse or, you know, he appears by a video link for his first initial appearance, then he might look weak and he might look like a coward. And that is what he fears above all else. We know that historically Trump has benefited from a fundraising perspective whenever there is a new investigation or, you know, for instance, with the impeachments, Trump was able to fundraise off those pretty massively. And, you know, given he's a presidential candidate now, that is, that is you know, really important to him. Now, you have a full-time job just covering all his multiple legal battles. There are so many things out there. I've heard some anti-Trump people fearing that the the fact that this one, the Stormy Daniels case, may be the one that, as it were, goes first, that sees him indicted, and if he gets his way, you know, 
cuffed um, on TV is undermining of what are actually much stronger cases. The view that the Manhattan Stormy Daniels case is in some ways the weakest one of those arrayed against him, that much stronger are those cases that relate to incitement to insurrection on January the 6th, famously trying to muscle the officials, the election officials in Georgia, telling them to find the votes that would give him a win, holding on to classified documents that he should have handed over, that those are all pretty strong cases and that actually this is playing into his hands by going with this weakest case first. It enables him in a way to taint the whole pool of cases and charges against him and say it's all uh, part of this witch hunt. You know, you're up close to all these cases. Uh, What's your sense of it? Yeah, I don't see it that way. I, you know, these these cases are not mutually exclusive, um, and you know you can have cases brought in multiple jurisdictions. You know, I think comparatively speaking, you know, quote unquote weak case here is a pretty common view, uh, and I don't think that's necessarily wrong. But I don't think it affects the other investigations. In fact, I was thinking the only way it does affect the other investigations is to is for it to be a poor outcome for Trump. Because if he is convicted in the Manhattan DA case, then he would be a convicted felon. And if he's then convicted in additional cases, let's say in Georgia or the January 6th federal investigation or the, or the documents investigation, then that will be worth for him on sentencing. Because the way that the federal rules of criminal procedure work here is, and the sentencing guidelines is, if you've been convicted of previous crimes, then uh, in the eyes of the law, you basically see harsher sentences down the line. And so in many ways, actually, I think the fact that this case goes first may be quite an interesting uh, or instructive view of kind of how the other investigations may unfold. Yeah, I mean, although it could also go the other way where it doesn't uh, lead to a conviction because it is, you know, legally complicated in the way you explained it before. So it could, I suppose, you know, undermine that case. If he manages to get off on this one, he'll be able to say, well, I'm on a roll now with the others. But I did wonder also just about, to go back to the very basics of this case, that it does involve uh, an alleged affair with a woman who made her living in adult films. He was married at the time, Donald Trump, when this uh, affair is alleged to have happened, I think married with his wife was either uh, newly pregnant or had just had their child. Does that not damage him with, I'm thinking of traditional, socially conservative, perhaps evangelical voters? It reminds them that whatever else he is, you know, Donald Trump is not like them. He's not a you know, God-fearing Christian who obeys his vows. Uh, yes, although Trump has historically done a very good job of being able to bring these sorts of voters along. And for whether it's independent voters or kind of more evangelical voters to, to look past his personal transgressions and kind of see, you know, his bigger policy goals or his or his kind of wider agenda about, you know, sticking into the Democrats effectively. I mean, he doesn't really have policy beyond beyond trying to show up the Democrats. If you think back to when all this hush money stuff was happening, it was actually just days or weeks after the Access Hollywood tape came out when he when he was kind of shown discussing, you know, grabbing women by the genitals. This was locker room talk. Uh, I'm not proud of it. I apologize to my family. I apologize to the American people. Certainly I'm not proud of it, but this is locker room. And that 
really didn't end up harming him. You know, right? You know, days later, after the hush money payments and after the Access Hollywood tape, he went on to win the election. Um, and so historically, he's done very well in managing to disassociating the the kind of more problematic elements of what he says and the caustic nature of his speech with all his actions with his kind of broader political image. Let's just talk a bit about how he's responded to all this, particularly when he was the one telling his followers um, that he was poised to be arrested and giving a date for it. Actually, you know, the day came and went. But he was appearing to urge then um, his supporters to come out and, you know, protest. After predicting his arrest on Tuesday, the former president urged his supporters to, quote, take back our nation. And a lot of people thought this was very similar to the tenor of the uh, uh, of the messages he was sending just ahead of and on January the 6th, 2021, where he told his followers, you know, if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Given that he actually could face charges for incitement on January the 6th, you would think his lawyers were telling him, you know, don't give them an ammunition to suggest this is a pattern of behaviour. Or do you think he doesn't care and was actually quite keen on the prospect that there may have been, you know, protesters and even riots outside the Manhattan courthouse? Yeah, his lawyers were not happy with that post. You know, first of all, this thing about he's going to be arrested on Tuesday. Yeah, we did a lot of extensive reporting around that to figure out where that had come from. And as it turns out, it came from nothing other than his own guesswork. You know, he had watched um, an NBC News report the previous Friday that suggested that charges were imminent and he kind of freaked out. And in his paranoia and anxiety, he sent this post uh, the following morning saying, you know, oh, I'm going to get arrested on Tuesday just as a bit of a trial balloon to see what would happen. But as you say, they really did not appreciate the second part either when he kind of called all uh, his supporters to protest in what he calls the racist uh, Manhattan DA, who, by the way, is black for prosecuting him. And one of the very notable elements of this post was he left out the kind of word peacefully. Right. In the January 6th investigation, he has repeatedly said, you know, oh, I called on people to protest peacefully and, you know, tries to, su- to suggest that that is somehow exculpatory. It's interesting that he didn't bother to put that in this time. But it's also interesting to see how people responded. The response was more lackluster than I think he anticipated, which was why you haven't seen him ask for more, more protests down the line. And I think that's why you see him resign to the fact he's probably going to get indicted. And so is, you know, now talking about how he's going to how he wants to be handcuffed with his hands behind his back and how he wants to do a pup walk. Yeah, and and the crowds, as you've been telling us, they didn't show up uh, for him. And all of that, I think, will be looked at as evidence that perhaps the Trump power, the magnetism of Trump, is fading somewhat. Obviously, his method of defence is always offence, and he's gone on the offence against uh, the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, who you've mentioned. I mean, not somebody with a political profile that was well-known outside New York City before now. Trump attacking him, as you said, calling him racist, which is a bit sort of cognitively dissonant, given we're talking about a black man. I'd be interested to hear from you what his grounds are for calling him racist, but also saying Soros-funded. George Soros, of course, philanthropist, backs a lot of political candidates on the usually on the democratic side it's often seen as a bit of a not very subtle dog whistle because george soros is famously jewish and that he uh, to mention him is seen by some as sort of code for a 
long-established anti-Semitic trope, namely the one that suggests, you know, shadowy Jews are secretly behind world events. Is that how you read these attack lines against Alvin Bragg? Yeah, they're, they're just the usual epithets that Trump likes to level at. Uh, you know, people who are investigating him. I mean, he, he has a track record of calling black prosecutors racist um, because, you know, he has this perverse interpretation of, well, if, you know, a black prosecutor is unfairly prosecuting a white guy, then that is racist. The references to Soros, I think, are anti-Semitic tropes. You know, Trump is very good at dropping uh, nicknames or epithets when he sees that they don't work. And, you know, the fact that he's repeated it with... Alvin Bragg, I think, shows that he believes at least that the the base likes it and the base responds to that, which is why he he perpetuates in, in using them. The wider Republican Party, I mean, they may not want particularly to be drawn back into all of this, which is carries such sort of baggage for them. And yet, Leading Republicans have been coming to Donald Trump's defense. Marjorie Taylor Greene, you'd expect that, but also Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House. Who vowed to use congressional committees to investigate New York City's investigation. But McCarthy is distancing himself from Mr. Trump's call for protests. I don't think people should protest this, no. What's your read of Republican leadership and whether or not they want to get all in behind Donald Trump in this battle you know, potentially even McCarthy has said he might use his power as speaker to direct committees of the House to investigate, you know, the way federal funds have been used in this investigation. Is it your sense that they're happy to go all in behind Trump or they would really rather be shot of this whole set of stories? Yeah, I mean, it, it's without a doubt that they don't want to be involved in this. You know, you know, House Republicans were actually at a retreat in Orlando this week. Uh, where they were supposed to be uh, huddling over policy ideas and coming up with with policy uh, proposals for this Congress. And it got completely upstaged by Trump's post that he was going to be arrested and, you know, pressure from Trump allies for them to kind of fall in behind Trump. And you do see, the, you know, the usual Trump allies on Capitol Hill, people like Jim Jordan. President Trump announced he was going to run for president again. And suddenly here they go. Now they're coming after him for some alleged bookkeeping error. You've got to be kidding me. You know, backing the former president. But I think for a lot of other kind of House Republicans, this is not what they wanted to be spending their time with. And I think it's a reflection on still how much influence Trump has. You know, they have to they have to have this very awkward dance, this very weird tightrope that they had to walk where on the one side, they have to make sure they're sufficiently criticizing uh, the investigation so they don't come on, you know, Trump's bad side. Uh, and yet at the same time, they want to be spending as little time talking about it as possible. So you mentioned Capitol Hill Republicans and their sort of discomfort. What though about those Republicans who are readying themselves to challenge Donald Trump for the presidential nomination next year? In a way, you would think these multiple legal problems were a gift to them and they would be happily uh, you know, pointing the accusing finger at Donald Trump. But instead, you've got this sort of a bit of tortured language themselves. There's former Vice President Mike Pence, who you'll remember, uh, our listeners will remember Capitol Hill rioters literally were holding signs saying, hang Mike Pence. He has said that he finds the prospect of charges against Donald Trump troubling, in his words. It just feels like a politically charged prosecution here. 
And then I think more attention still, because people rate his chances more highly, Ron DeSantis, Florida governor, who gave a sort of yes, mealy-mouthed defence of Donald Trump and called it this a high-profile, politicised prosecution. You know, obviously we noticed that he then said, I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to, to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just, I can't speak to that. You know, I'm afraid I just don't have any knowledge of paying hush money to porn stars. Not really my thing. So sticking the knife into Trump, but still officially DeSantis, Pence, feeling that they have to defend Donald Trump. That tells us something about where they feel the base is, I suppose. Yeah, you know, if you thought the discomfort among congressional Republicans was bad, it's a different level for Trump's potential political rivals uh, running for the White House in 24. You know, and I think the the DeSantis episode was emblematic of this tightrope that Republican candidates are having to walk when it comes to Trump and the base. With DeSantis, it kind of shows how difficult that is, right? DeSantis throwed a little rock over to Trump, uh, and then Trump lashed back in the most caustic way that he does. Um, and he basically sent out a post that said, oh, you know, when you, when you become a, a, a household name nationwide, who knows, you know, what other women or women are going to accuse you of kind of crimes. And then he, in brackets, with this kind of homophobic slur, put, oh, and men. And, you know, I think DeSantis was utterly floored by that. And he did not have a response, formally or informally. Uh, and it kind of shows how difficult it is to fight with Trump in this arena. You know, this is Trump's wheelhouse. He's very good at throwing insults and barbs, and he's very good at rounding on people very quickly. It kind of shows the problems that these Republican candidates have. You know, they can't hit Trump too hard. And yet, if you're really going to come for the king, you better not miss. Yeah. I mean, it is it is just a text worthy of study, this post from Donald Trump. He, as you say, he says when he gets better known, maybe he could be unfairly and illegally attacked by a woman, even classmates that are underage or possibly a man. I'm sure he will want to fight these misfits just like I do. No evidence for any of this, of course, but he just that's how he goes. And it is the classic line about wrestling with a pig. You both get muddy, but the pig likes it. Did any of this matter in terms of the actual business of be seeking the Republican nomination for Donald Trump? If he is literally defending himself in a criminal case, does that in any way put limits on what he can do as a candidate? Even, I don't know, I mean, are there legal limits about spending, about appearing at events, if you are, you know, in the dock, perhaps in multiple jurisdictions at the same time? No, there are no limits whatsoever. And what you're seeing now is, is basically the Republican primary. You know, this is, as you say, a foretaste of what is to come. I think the way Trump and his campaign see it, if he is indicted, this will be a massive boon for him politically and with respect to fundraising. I don't know if that's completely true. And, and you know, we should always say that with Trump, you know, we can expect the unexpected because there is no precedent. But, you know, it stands to reason that American voters and especially independents in general may not be so enamored with a candidate for office who is actually convicted of a crime as opposed to someone who's under investigation for a crime. And I think that is a risk for Trump. And he does accept that, which is why and partly why you see him trying to delay all these investigations. Um, and he may well be successful with this. You know, even with the Stormy Daniels case, if you look at a pretrial schedule, if he's indicted next week, you know, you're looking at months of pretrial conference. If he is convicted, then it's going to appeal this. And then you're going to have another several months of pretrial conference. And it could take so long, in fact, that we may not have a resolution before the summer of 2024 when 
the election season is upon us. Hugo Lowell, thanks as ever. Thanks so much for joining me on Politics Weekly America. Thanks for having me. And that is all from me for this week. Before I go, I did want to point you in the direction of some of The Guardian's other great podcasts, like, for example, Science Weekly, where on Tuesday, Madeleine Finley spoke to our colleague in the US, Manvi Singh, about the Biden administration's decision to approve a controversial new oil drilling project in Alaska, a move that has angered climate activists. Also on Thursday, Today in Focus launched a new four-part miniseries that features reporting by Annie Kelly about a woman who took on her traffickers in the UK and won. The series will run over the weekend, so do make sure to listen out for that, along, as I say, with The Guardian's Science Weekly, wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens, the executive producer this week, Christian Bennett. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.